0: Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, Lead Pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. And So I'm excited this morning that we are going to be starting a new series in the Prison Letters of Paul. These are letters that Paul wrote to give you a little bit of context. You might be asking, what are the prison letters? They are four letters that Paul wrote uh, near the end of his ministry as he was preaching and establishing churches all across the Roman province of Asia Minor. Uh, a lot of it would be in today's modern day Turkey and, and, and into some parts of Europe and, uh, you know, uh, across to, to the eastern side as well as he was establishing and planting churches and And encouraging these churches and writing to them, really acting as a father in the faith to them. Um, In in the midst of doing all of this, he got arrested several times. So several times he got into trouble with the authorities. What he was doing had such an impact that it was disrupting industry. They, They once called the disciples those who come to turn the world upside down. It was having a massive impact. I still believe that that's part of the mandate of the church is just to turn some things upside down in a city. To cause some change, to affect some, you know, there's, there's got to be a conversation that happens as a result of the presence of the church of God. And so many people are upset with Paul. The enemy is trying to stop Paul from doing the work that he's doing. And so he's arrested at least three separate times. A lot of people believe four times. Um, at the very least, but three that we read about in the Bible. And uh, and on the second occasion that he is arrested, he appeals as a Roman citizen to stand before Caesar. And uh, this became a bit of a habit that he wouldn't be tried by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but every time he says, I'm going to appeal to Caesar... And as a result, he gets questioned, uh, you know, leading up to that meeting with Caesar several times. And each time he gets to share the gospel with Roman governors and with kings like King Agrippa. And, and, and ultimately standing before Caesar himself and sharing the gospel. And uh, just there's this powerful thing. And so, and so Paul realized, when I get arrested, I'm arrested to the glory of God. I'm going to get an opportunity through this to preach the gospel And on that second arrest, he gets put under house arrest in Rome. The final one, he was in a jail cell. But the second one, he was under house arrest in Rome. Or I should rather say maybe the second last one. Um, And during that time, he's kept there for a few years while he's awaiting trial. And during that time, he's not allowed to leave. He's being watched over by guards. But he is allowed to receive guests. And he is allowed to write and send letters out. And he knows, and this was just a few short years before Paul eventually was beheaded by the emperor Nero. And so what if you knew that you're awaiting what is potentially going to be a death trial, what would you write? What would you say to your kids? What would you say to your family? What would you say to your friends? If you knew that I possibly, the moment I get called for this trial, I might, that might be my last day. What would you say, especially to young believers, to the next generation that's coming up, and that's really what Paul was doing when he wrote the prison letters. He wrote uh, three books to churches uh, in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians. And then he wrote one book to a friend in Philemon or Philemon. He wrote these books and, and he's speaking to them about what it really means to be free. I, I, I'm fascinated at the fact that a man who is in prison is writing to people about, who are free about freedom which shows that freedom is not connected to your circumstance. It's not connected to your environment. It's not connected to what you're going through. You can be free and have freedom of movement, but yet be captive in your soul, captive in your life, captive to the lies of the enemy. And so Paul wants to teach free people how to be free like he is free, even though he's in prison. And so these prison letters are incredibly powerful and uh, and, and we're going to look at them all. We're going to start off in the book of Ephesians. And I absolutely love Ephesians. Uh, I love Colossians. And, and, and all of these books have had life-changing impacts in my own personal life as I've really begun to understand them. And, and even as I was preparing from Ephesians 1 um, this past week, man, it was just absolutely, you know, it's when I, you know, I get excited when I'm busy writing a message and then I, you know, I realize something then I have to stop and I have to go find my wife. And I'm like, Lee, Lee, where are you? She's like, I'm, I'm over here. What is it? I'm like, I just got to tell you what just happened, you know, what I just experienced in the Word. Like, how amazing is it that it says this, and then there's that, and then this revelation? Can't you believe it? And she's like, it's amazing, babes, you know? So, so I, I get so excited. I have to stop my own sermon writing to go share and then come back. So... Um, so anyway, so I'm really looking forward to this. We're going we're gonna to start in Ephesians 1, and I want to share a message with you today as we start the prison letters, um, a message entitled, Before the Foundation, if you're taking notes, uh, which I really encourage. It's so awesome to be able to write things down and, and, and mark certain things that have spoken to you and, and what God is saying to write those down. You can return to them. I've got notes that I took in a little Spider-Man booklet when I was 12 years old legitimately, I can show it to you, it was about joy, that message, and I've, I've, I used a lot of exclamation marks back then, but, um, but write those things down, you can always return to them later, and, and go and read them again, if you're taking notes this morning, before the foundation. Let's go together to Ephesians 1, and when we go through this, I like to just read a little passage of this, that I'll then go back to, and refer to different points within, because it just gives you a sense of of how Paul was writing this letter. Sometimes we just go verse by verse and it gets so staggered. So I just want you to get a general sense. Don't worry if you're kind of not understanding every part of it this morning. But I'm just going to read the first 14 verses here from Ephesians 1. And he starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from, our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said that there is no peace without His grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's a mouthful, Paul. You said a lot there, Paul, but it's so rich and so, so full when you get into what he's saying we have in Christ, what we have in Christ. I remember a few years ago, I was traveling to London and I got an airplane and we were arriving in London in the late afternoon, kind of like one of those gray sunset type of days, typical days in London. And as we were flying over, I happened to have, uh, you know, a window seat. And I looked out at the city of London below me with the, the Thames River snaking out below and, and all those typical landmarks that you would expect to see are just there. You know, the ones they would always show in every movie that involves London. I, I, I saw them almost like a pop-up book below me. They were all standing out. And, and I remember seeing a football field and, and wondering, I wonder what football field that is. And then as we flew over it, I looked down and I saw, oh, it's Fulham. It says Fulham on the chairs. It's probably why it's also empty, but it's Fulham. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I saw the, the, the soccer stadium and And all these different landmarks and just enjoying the sights. And when I was reading the book of Ephesians, I realized that the book of Ephesians, unlike Colossians and Philippians and so many of the rest of of Paul's writings, and more like the book of Romans, it's actually a very concise overview. It's all the landmarks. It's all the most important things that he's been saying for so long that he is writing for the church in Ephesus. But if you look at the way it's written, it's not just for the church in Ephesus. In fact, it has a very general sense about it. Again, like the book of Romans, it was, it, it, it was intended to be distributed to the church in general. And so if you know that you've only got a few years possibly to live and that you're right at the end of your life and you're writing to young churches, you're going to say, hey, guys, let me just tell you what's really important. Let me just help you understand what it is that we really have in Jesus, who you truly are in Jesus. There's certain things you need to know because it's, it's not something that we want you to find out at the end of your life when you're done figuring things out. It's something that we want you to live from, from as early on in your life as possible. Because otherwise you waste your years trying to discover something only to find out you had it all along and you could have been living from that place. And instead, you spent your years searching for something you already had in your back pocket. Have you ever lost your keys and looked absolutely everywhere and then put your hand in your pocket and realized they were there all along, but you couldn't tell your wife? So you stuck them in the couch real quick and then pulled them out again and said, Hey, I found it. I found it. it was in the couch. Yeah, that's what we do. We get to the end of our lives and we realize, Oh, why didn't I just believe this earlier? I had it all along. And so that's really what Ephesians is like. It's a concise overview of everything the Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul about the gospel and how we can apply it in our lives. And ultimately, it comes down to two things. Knowing who Jesus is, is always the most important thing. Knowing who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what the finished work of the cross has accomplished for your life. So number one, knowing who Jesus is. Number two, knowing who you are in Jesus. If we could figure those two things out and truly believe it with all of our hearts, it will transform the landscape of our lives for eternity. What it speaks to, those two things, is your identity. What do you see when you look into the mirror? What do you think about yourself when you look into the mirror? Do you see your sin and your imperfection or your failures or your flaws? Are you you embarrassed about the life that you've lived? Are Are you trying to convince yourself that it's not so bad? When you look into the mirror, what is it that you believe about yourself, that you think about yourself? What is it that you think God thinks about you? Paul doesn't want us to have any kind of misgivings about the way God feels about us, about the way he sees us, about what he believes about us. In many ways, looking into the eyes of Jesus and into the mirror of his word is like staring into the mirror of eternity. It's almost like you have a river that's flowing past you, and a river of eternity, and it, and it stretches back to eternity past and forward to eternity future and past the very point where you're standing right now. And I believe that it's when we look into that living water, the person of Jesus, that we see the truest reflection. Of who we are. The problem is we live in a hall of mirrors. I remember once going to a fair, like a carnival that had a house of mirrors, a, a hall of mirrors, and, and walking through there with my friends. And what it does is the different uh, you know, angles of the mirror basically distort your image in comical ways. You take photos, and fortunately, there was no Instagram back then, so I couldn't post it. But I remember laughing. With my friends at the distorted images in the mirror. But you know, this world does that. We live in that hall with those distorted images. The angles are all wrong. And it's only when we come to the true reflection of the Word of God, of the person of Jesus, that we see the true image of who we are. It's vitally important for your life and your future because it's when you begin to see Jesus that you begin to discover yourself. It's Paul's conviction that in Jesus, it's not your failures, it's not your imperfections, it's not the mistakes you've made, it's not the things you've achieved, it's none of those things, but that you and I and we are the beloved of God. He uses that word that he's like, you've been accepted in the beloved. You're a part of the family, You've made it onto the team. You're here. You're a part of this. It matters for your life. You're not on the outside. You're not a foreigner. You're not a stranger. His love is for you. You're accepted. You are loved. Why? Because you are a son and a daughter of God. That's who you are. That's the first point of your identity. I am the one whom Jesus loves. I often use this analogy. If somebody woke you up in the middle of the night, put a gun to your head and said, who are you? Your answer shouldn't be, well, I, uh, you know, I'm the CEO of a company or I work at, you know, people ask us that oftentimes we, what do we do? Well, I work there or I do this or, you know, I've achieved that. No, that's not the core of your identity. The core of your identity should be, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. That's who I am. And it doesn't matter what else happens. That's who I am. And so Paul wants us to understand that. But then the massive spiritual imperative that you and I have. The imperative that this knowledge drives us to is to live a life based on that knowledge. So most of you would agree with me today that you are the one whom Jesus loves. But if I asked you, are you living from that place? Oh, then it becomes a lot more sketchy. Then it's a lot more, I'm not so sure if I live that way. I I deal a lot with insecurity. I deal a lot with brokenness. I deal a lot with self-doubt. I don't know, do I really live from that place? But that's what we're called to church. That's what Paul is trying to say in the book of Ephesians. He's trying to say to us that you've got to know who you are and then live from that place. In fact, we'll cover this next week, but he opens up with a prayer for the church. He desperately starts praying. He's like, God, I don't know if they can help themselves, so won't you help them understand? What does he pray? that they would know the inheritance that they have, that they would know the power of God that is at work within them. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is within your mortal bodies also. God, let them understand that they're not just trying to survive, trying to make it through life, but that they have the love of God and the power of God. And the favor of God on their lives. Help them know who they are, Lord. This is how he starts. So that we can live a life based on that knowledge. It's, a, it's no small thing to do. It's no easy thing to do. I, this week I watched an interview with uh, Professor Jordan Peterson out of, out of Canada. And some of his journey with faith, and people often ask him if he is a believer, and he says, although, and this is just in his reasoning coming from his psychological perspective, he's saying, you know, I I actually do think that there may be a God. It's plausible, and when he talks about this, he is emotional, it's not just some rationale, rationale that he's worked out, it's he genuinely believes there could be a God, but he doesn't know if he can call himself a believer yet. Because he says, what would it look like if you lived a life truly believing that you were united with God? If you weren't always running at cross purposes to yourself. Only believing 60 or 70% and the rest is self-doubt and and self-contradiction. What would we look like? How would a person be transformed and transfigured in everything they say and do and desire if they truly believed that they were united with Christ? And he knows himself. He He just needs somebody to share grace with him. But he knows himself and he says, I cannot claim to be transformed in that way yet. So I don't know if I can claim to be a believer. And as I say, I wish I could just go and share the gospel and share that our acceptance as believers is based on what Jesus did for us, not what we have done for Jesus. But you know, how shameful is it that he has a higher view of what it means to be a believer than people who actually call themselves believers? That he understands that believing means that you will be fundamentally changed that your life won't be the same. How many of us claim to believe in God, but we live our daily lives as if he doesn't exist? We deal with every crisis as if it's completely up to us. It's why Jesus constantly said to the disciples, oh, you of little faith, don't you believe God loves you? Don't you believe he wants to move on your behalf? And so this is a difficult thing for us to live even though it might be an easy thing to claim. And so Paul is desperately wanting the church to understand who they are. He opens that letter of Ephesians with a prayer. God, help them see, let them trust in the power. How much less would we struggle with insecurity, with self-doubt, with anxiety, with pursuing things that are ultimately worthless? How much less time would we waste trying to impress others and hold on to a good name and and accomplish something that, that, that would stand up before society? How much less time would we waste if we just understood that we are already loved and the sons and daughters of God? The truth is that most of us fail constantly to claim the truths of who we are and live from that place. And so I'm going to ask Pastor Brent to bring outside of the microphone and my Bible and my wife, my fourth favorite thing. (laughs) My wife's number one, just just so you know. That wasn't, which is the drawing board. I struggle. I sit at restaurants with people when I'm doing counseling and I've got my own notebook. And even if they don't see it, I'm drawing while I speak. So I'm constantly wanting to take every opportunity to write something down. But what I want to show you this morning is I want to I just give you a visual. Thanks, Brent. Give you a visual idea, an illustration of the lives that we, that we lead. And if this was your chronology or my chronology, the life that we live, That represents, that little line represents your life. And so if I put the year that I was born, that I came into this earth, 1984, 17th of February. By the way, in Genesis 7 and verse 11, you can go look this up. It says, on the 17th day of the second month, the Lord opened the heavens and the great waters of the deep burst forth. (laughs) Check it out. Check it out. I'm just going to put Genesis. (laughs) I'm not saying it's referring to me. I'm just saying it happens to refer to my birthday. All right. So this is the year that I was born. and, And let's say I live for 80 years and I live to 2064. That's all I get. Now, you might have come later on this line you might, have, you might live beyond this line a little bit. But ultimately, whether you were born before me and live longer than me, we all only get the space between those two lines. And it goes by in the blink of an eye. We had a breakfast with Pastor Mark and Auntie Cora on Friday morning. And we just sat there with them and they were talking about how long they've been in ministry. And I realized they have been in ministry longer than I have been on this earth. Pastor Mark is in his 70s onto chorus 68. And they're saying, it was like yesterday that we finished school. It goes by so quickly. And so we all have to deal with the fact that we have this really short period of time here on earth. And the question that we're constantly trying to figure out along this line is, who am I? Who am I? What am I here for? What am I trying to do? Who am I? Now, how do you define that? If somebody said something about your life, how would they define it? And the first thing that we begin to to learn about that society values that we think defines the space between this line is, I am what I do. That's the very first thing we go to. Whatever I do, you know, if, if, you, if, you have a, if you've just gotten a promotion and you've just moved up a level at your company and your are CEO or you lead this or you lead that and somebody meets you at a party and says, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I've been waiting for this question. <laughs> but if you have a job that doesn't sound that exciting, let's say you're a, a stay-at-home mom, which we love. We, I, know what, I know that's a big job. That's harder than running some companies. But then we changed the title to home executive. I manage a small portfolio of kids, you know. Because we're so bought into the idea that I am what I do. And so when you're achieving and when you have success and when great things are happening, you feel good about yourself. But how many of you know that that is not the course of life? We all face setbacks, we all face challenges, we all uh, get demoted sometimes or retrenched or whatever it might be. Or we fail, we sin, we do things that hurt others and then all of a sudden we hit a depression. Because we don't know who we are. You'll see people who find their identity and what they do. Take it away from them, they don't know what to do. They don't know who they are anymore. They begin to crumble because their identity was so connected by that. Some people that are older kind of might be retired and aren't blazing trails anymore, but they want to constantly point you to the trophies of the past. Oh, this is what I did. I did some good. I had some success. I, you know, I achieved a few things. Can you see? Can you see? Can everybody please love me? Our favorite line from a movie that Brent and I often repeat is, will that make you love me? If you know the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. And we say that to people. If I can have this trophy, will that make you love me? We think we are what we do. Number two, I am what other people say about me. I am what others say about me. Now, this is a a very powerful thing, and it becomes a very important thing in people's lives when, when they speak well about you. How many of you know when people are speaking well of you, you walk around freely? I mean, you enter every place with confidence because you are well spoken of. People believe in you. I remember going to a pastor's meeting once and I was standing with a pastor who leads a big uh, church group in our nation and, and has campuses everywhere. And I stood with him and I was just getting a coffee and he was next to me. So we greeted and he asked me who I was and I told him who I was. And he said, oh, you're Adrian from Anchor. And he said, you have an awesome reputation. That's what he told me. And in that instant, I felt pressure. Please, God, let me keep this reputation. You know, like, what happens if I fail? What happens if I don't live up to the reputation? Who do I become then? So rather than encouraging me, it, it, it actually made me feel like I better just not mess, mess this up. And all of a sudden, what can happen like that is that your distinct purpose in life becomes trying to keep your good name. Trying to just impress everybody And so even when you struggle, you can't talk about it. You can't be honest. You can't be authentic because you're so busy trying to convince everybody that you're perfect, that you're great. What other people say about me, you'll know the power of this. When people are speaking positively, a hundred people can say something positive. But one person will say a negative thing. And all of a sudden, it it just causes you to crumble. It, It cuts so deeply. You could think about it for years. Like Mrs. Morris, who in grade three told me I was irresponsible. (laughs) She's watching. I forgive you. (laughs) It can stay with you forever, the negative things that get said. So when you build your identity on that, it's going to lead you to some real heartache and disappointment. The third thing is, I am what I have. You might say that, you know, I, I was raised in a good home. I have many possessions. I have good health. I have a good education. I come from a good class and society. I've got all these things behind me. But what happens when we lose any of that? We've seen how people who, who during the recession that happened in 2006, 7 and 8, uh, and, and, and even now through the lockdowns and everything, that there were people that you had people that were executives of companies showing up for minimum wage jobs queuing. What happens when you lose it? When you don't have the finances in the bank anymore, or your, your health takes a knock, or you lose a loved one, or some of your possessions? we can so easily slip into an inner darkness because we've based our identity on where we live, what we drive, and what class we belong to. See, the problem is that we spend almost all of our energy during the course of this very little line trying to meet those standards. Trying to, trying to constantly live up to the idea that we are what we do. We are what people say about us. And we are what we have. And when that's the case, your life will very quickly look like this. So as long as it's above the line, when you have a promotion or when something good happens or when people speak well of you, you're above the line, you're up. But the moment it turns, you hit this depression, you hit this low, and you don't know how to process that. And so our entire pursuit in life becomes trying to stay above the line. We put all of our mental and physical and emotional energy into just staying above the line. And when we ask people if they if they how they're doing or if they can get involved or if they you know if if they can step up to the call of God on their lives they say we're just trying to survive you know, when you're working to hold on to your good name or, or when you're trying to just do just the right things and never fail or, or when, you're, when, you're, when you're trying to uh, keep a certain financial portfolio going or whatever it might be. Ultimately, all you're doing is trying to survive. And that is not the place that God has destined for us to find our identity from. So Paul is praying for you, going, please, God, please, God, let them understand that that's not your identity, that that's not their identity. Please, God, let them understand who they are in Christ, that they are accepted in the beloved children and daughters of God. See, I believe that it's Satan and his demons who have actually convinced this world, the God of this age, has blinded them. Satan has convinced us that we need to find our identity in these things. That pursuing those things will make your life worthwhile. All the the while he knows that it's only going to discourage you and get you to waste your life. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was tempted in exactly the same way. You know, Satan doesn't have new strategies. He just uses the old ones and they're very effective. And he tried the same strategy on Jesus. He said to Jesus, won't you turn this rock into bread? Jesus, you have power. Put it on display. You are what you do. How many of you have read that verse and been like, come on, Jesus, do it. Do it, show him. Jesus says, I don't need to. I don't need to prove. I'm not what I do. I don't need to prove that. He says, why don't you throw yourself off of the temple and God will command his angels concerning you and people will speak well of you and talk about the miraculous things that you can do. will not you show everybody that God is on your side? Jesus is like, I'm not what people think about me. He stood before Herod and was accused and shouted at. And had every right to defend himself. And yet he stayed silent. What people have to say about me is none of my business. I know who I am in Christ. Jesus knew who he was. He says, bow down and worship me. Satan says, bow down and worship me to Jesus. And I will give you everything your eyes can see. Possessions, you are what you have. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, he was trying to convince him that he would be loved, accepted, and significant. That everybody would love him if he could do these things. But Jesus says, that's a lie. A lie that leads to destruction. And I will not bow because I know who I am. Because before I was led into the desert to be tempted by you, the Spirit of God already told me who I am. God's spirit already spoke. What happened just before Jesus went into the desert? He was baptized. And in Matthew 3, verse 17, we see this. After Jesus come up, came up out of the waters of baptism, it says, behold, a voice from heaven, the voice of God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's my beloved son. And my favor rests upon him. So Jesus knew that. So you couldn't get him to do a fancy little miracle. Or to test God by jumping off of a tower. Or to try and save his reputation. It meant nothing to him. He made himself of no reputation. Because he knew who he was. The Bible says knowing where he came from and to where he was going. His power in knowing who you are. You are my beloved son and my favor rests upon, on, upon you. That is the voice that he clung to as he lived his life. People praised him and rejected him. They hailed him and they crucified him, but he clung to that truth. It made no difference what they thought. It made no difference what they did because he knew that he was the beloved. He was unwavering as a result. Is that what your life looks like? I'm the beloved even before I was born. And what was said of Jesus, if you read the scriptures, is said of you, Anchor Church. Every individual of this place, in this place, it was said of you. It was said of you. In 1 John 3 verse 1, I can mention many scriptures. But John writes and he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we shouldn't be called that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Just like Jesus was the beloved son, you today are the beloved son and the beloved daughter of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We're from another place. Our identity comes from, from elsewhere, not from what we can do in this line but from who we really are seated with Christ in heavenly places. But you have to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit for your own life today. Every single one of us. This is not something that I can do for you secondhand. Have you heard God's voice telling you that you're his son, that you're his daughter and that you are loved? That's where where it all begins to change for us. It will change your life when you hear that voice and live from that place. Ultimately, that knowledge that you have of God and the knowledge of His love for you begins to expand and expand and expand until that knowledge intercepts your daily life. It starts to overtake everything that you're about and that you do. And so you will still face rejection. Even with this knowledge, you'll still face rejection. You'll still face loss and difficulty and hard times, but they will no longer threaten your identity. Amen? It won't threaten your identity and who you are because he loved us first. He loved us first. And so Paul wants the church to know that before there were anyone in this world, before they had done a single thing, before anybody had heard of them, before they owned a single thing, it was already settled in heaven before the foundation. That scripture says you were chosen before the foundation. There is something preceding this line. There is a time that God shaped you in your mother's womb and ordained every one of your days before there was one of them and called you his beloved. And it's in this space, before time, before your life, before the foundation of the world where God decided who you are in Christ, chose you in him, blessed you with every blessing in the spiritual, in the heavenlies and said, this is who you are. So don't let the world come and lie to you and rob you of what God has declared over you. Come on. It's who you are in Christ. It's who you were before the foundation that matters. People ask me when I was saved, and I say, before the world began. That's when God saved me. The lamb that was slaughtered, that was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus died for me. So you are not the social constructs of this world, whatever it claims. You're not your influence on TikTok. Yesterday I watched a Six Nations game between France and Ireland and the rugby ball had TikTok on it. And I was wondering whether I could still watch Six Nations rugby with that kind of sacrilege <laughs> and dishonor. But you know, we've, we've built our whole value system around these things. How many likes do I get on a post? What do people think about me? How many people know about me? No, the Bible says before any of that, You were loved and blessed by God. Paul says in verses three to four, blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before you lost that job, before you faced that loss, before you made that mistake, before you committed that sin, before that thing happened in your life, you were already blessed with every spiritual blessing. It's not hinging on those things. You were chosen in Christ. The Bible says, do not, in Colossians, which we'll cover in the future, do not let anyone disqualify you for the prize. The prize Jesus died for you to have. We see there in Ephesians 1, 7, he says, in him, in Jesus, you have Redemption. So whatever you've done that may have been wrong, you have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us. And I love that word lavished. I don't know why, but I imagine a car wash. You know, when you, when you, when you put the sponge in the bucket and it's just like water's dripping and soaps everywhere and you just like slosh it on the window screen and it's just like everywhere. You're like, this is amazing. <laughs> I sometimes do it in my bikini or whatever. You know, just like... Sorry for the image. I don't really have a bikini. But that idea of lavished God didn't just give you, oh, okay, you messed up again. Here's a little bit of grace to get through it. No, he lavished that grace upon you so that you'll no longer struggle with the sin, that you'll no longer be under the dominion of sin, but that you'll have the victory that causes you to live abundantly in the call of God for your life. It's not just for all the things you need to be forgiven from, but all the things you're going to walk into by His grace. You have that redemption. You don't have to earn it. It's yours in Jesus. You have been bought back, which is what redemption means, to be bought at a price. You've been forgiven according to the plan of God to unite us all together with Him. We then see in Ephesians 1.11, it says, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance in Jesus. Having been, it says in him we've been obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there are certain things, like I have a life policy, I think. I can't remember. Erin, do I have one? I'm not sure. But I have a life policy, and what happens is if I die, my, the beneficiaries, which is my family, will receive whatever I have for them to receive. And the Bible says that in Jesus, when he died on the cross, we all were named as beneficiaries and everything that the cross accomplished is yours, not because you earned it or worked for it. That would be a salary, not an inheritance, but because you're a child, because you're a daughter, because you're one with Christ. What he has won for us on the cross is yours by inheritance as a child of God. It can't be lost. My kids do not always obey me. But it doesn't mean they stop being my kids. And so this is not something that you can be disqualified from. You've obtained an inheritance. How do you know? How do you know that there will be a a heaven and and all the good things God has promised? How do you know that you'll have all of those things? Well, the Bible says that God gave His Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a guarantee that if God says He's going to do something... He's going to do it. That you are accepted, that you are loved. I often say that grace, a synonym for that could be the presence of Jesus. Why is God presence in the lives of sinners? Why? Because of grace. How do we know? Well, we actually have his spirit. We experience him. We journey with him. There's fellowship with him. We draw closer to him. We're in a relationship with this Holy Spirit that is our comforter, our healer, who reminds us of the words of Jesus, who's constantly shaping and molding and speaking to us. We have this presence of God in our lives as a tangible reality. And if that's real, how much more every other promise of God? You have the deposit of the Holy Spirit, so you have your guarantee of inheritance. And so... In this world of restrictions and setbacks and hardships and pain, Paul is writing from prison, teaching free people how to be free, showing them that you've got to know. If you're going to be free, you've got to know who you are. He wrote from prison letting us know that because of Jesus, we don't have to live as prisoners. We've been set free. You are not what you do. You are not what others say about you. You are not what you own or what you have. But you are chosen, blessed, redeemed, and have a great inheritance in Christ. You are the one whom Jesus loves. Amen. Amen. Won't you stand with me this morning?